0: is going to read for us this morning and then rich is
1: going to preach so i'm reading from the church bibles from page 1052 and i'm reading from luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42 at home at the home of martha and mary As Jesus and his disciples were on the way, he came to the village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her.
0: Good morning. Good morning, happy new year, welcome to the next decade. Anyone like me wondering, I'm not entirely sure where the last one went, um, but here we are. We have a, an opportunity, don't we, to get things in perspective and in place. We are kicking off a new series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. This is season three, for those of you who've been around for any length of time, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, we were in London for a couple of days over Christmas. And as part of that, we decided we would visit Harrods. Because when in Knightsbridge, darling, might as well pop in. We didn't buy anything. We couldn't afford to buy a plastic bag, never mind anything else. But we thought we'd pop in and experience what Harrods is. And some of you will have, perhaps Peter Harrods, many of you may not. Here it is looking glorious in its Christmas lights. It is magical at Christmas time, isn't it, London generally, but particularly places like that. And so we were in there and uh, we were blown away by, uh, on one hand, this extraordinary temple to hyper-consumerism, where you can get the very best of anything and pretty much everything. The cheese shop was just unbelievable. The chocolates, the handbags, the, everything is the very best of the very best. It's also obscene, because less than a mile away is Grenfell Tower wrapped in scaffolding which you pass on the way in, and it's just this reminder that we've got things so horribly wrong, haven't we? One of the memories I have of being in Harris, one of these moments I spotted and just watched, has kind of stuck with me. We were in the Christmas decoration area, which was enormous, and... Uh, Kath was looking at some decorations and uh, I just spotted out of the corner of my eye this little girl who was dressed beautifully in the very best of the very best, uh, stood at the edge of this um, big box and there was a, on the other side there was a Harrods um, shop assistant, I'm sure they're not called that, they're probably called something very important, and he had in there um, loads of fake snow and he was demonstrating this particular product that you could buy, a little box of... White powder that when you added some water to it, it kind of magically morphed into this snow that kind of just sort of grew before your eyes. It wasn't extraordinary. And this little girl was literally watching it wide eyed. She's like, and I could hear her saying, It's magic. Oh, it's magic. And she said to the guy, Would you do it again? And he's thinking, Yeah, finally got a customer. And, uh, and so he's doing it again. And she's like, Daddy, 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 come and look, Daddy, look. Daddy is over here with stressed out uh, wife, both of them looking beautifully dressed in the very best of the very best, having some debate over which bauble they were going to buy. I had a quick look on the way out. They were £50 each, so big deal, right? And uh, they're obviously trying to buy the perfect Christmas tree, probably because of all the social pressures of the world that they operate in. I don't know. I'm I'm hyper kind of projecting there. But I'm watching this guy who's, who's not really paying attention to his daughter. He's not really paying attention to his wife. He's actually on his phone checking his emails. And in this moment, he's missing the moment with his daughter who just wants his attention. And eventually he comes over and He doesn't engage with her or what she wants him to engage with. He literally has a conversation with the shop assistant or whatever he was called and said, how much is a box? To which the answer is 25 pounds. To which he says, I'll take 10. And walks off. And the girl has this face of just, she was bereft. She didn't want her dad to buy anything. She wanted his attention. In that moment, she just wanted him to crouch down with her and watch this white powder become snow. It is entirely possible to go through life and miss the point entirely. Christmas is a good reminder, isn't it? It's entirely possible as that story uh, shows us, to, to think you've got to do Christmas in a certain way and miss the point entirely. It is possible, friends, to follow Jesus, to be keen, committed Christians, to do church and all of the stuff that we talk about and miss the point entirely. I want us to think carefully as we begin 2020, as we begin this year, this decade, whether or not we're making good choices, whether or not we perhaps unwittingly are missing the point. Can you hear me okay? I feel like I've got like feedback in my left ear, which is fine by me if you're all okay. It's probably angels just listening in or something, checking for heresy or something. Um, this story we just had read to us, Familiar, perhaps, to some of us, perhaps to many of us. It's well-trodden territory, isn't it? And we'll come to it in a moment, but it seems to me that Martha misses the point entirely. And that Jesus wants us to see something through the way in which he handles her and what he says to her. So keep your Bibles open, we'll be there in a moment. It has become a tradition, probably the wrong word, it has become part of our rhythm, if you like, to start the new calendar year in January with some teaching around what it looks like to be people who together learn to practice the way of Jesus, to do that in community. And as I said earlier, this is season three. We've spent the last two years doing this for a bit, and we're just revisiting it here again. I'm going to add a bit to the diet. We're going to remind you of some of what we're thinking about trying to work out together. Um, And so if you're new or you're visiting and you're interested in this, you can catch up on all of it online. It's all there. There's this whole special page all dedicated to it. And I'm going to really quickly recap some of the key elements so that those of us who've been tracking this I have a refresher. And those of us who are new will at least have some sense of why this is important. Practicing the way of Jesus is language that we've adopted, happily been given it to us by a church in uh, Portland, Oregon, that uh, we have connections with. And we've adopted that language because we think it better articulates what it means to be a Christian than perhaps some of the language we've had around uh, over the last few decades. What does it mean to be a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus? We think the language of practicing the way of Jesus is really helpful. It gives us a much more expansive view of what it means to think about discipleship and spiritual growth. If you've been around for any length of time, you'll know we have these three uh, priorities as a church, three things that Form and shape our thinking, our vision, our practice. The first is presence, being people of the presence of God. The second is formation, people who are being formed into the image of God, becoming, becoming truly newly restored humans. And the third is mission, being people who share the love of God with everybody all over the place. And practicing the way of Jesus is principally about formation. But actually, it leads us to the other two inevitably. We see in the gospel accounts that time and time and time again, Jesus invites everyone and anyone he comes across to follow him. That's the phrase he uses over and over again. He invites people to become his disciples. And the phrase, follow me, was a classic rabbinical saying. A rabbi, a teacher, would invite people. Follow them and learn their way of being a person of God. And so Jesus is doing that. We looked at how radically he subverts the norms around that, changes the rules on that, but does the same in another way. And the word he uses for disciple actually in the Hebrew is the word talmudim. And it's better translated or best translated apprentice. This idea of apprenticing to Jesus is what he wants us to get our heads around. A disciple, a Talmudim, is an apprentice of Jesus. Some of you perhaps will recall having uh, tradespeople come into your home to fix things, maybe a plumber or a carpenter, and often they have with them, don't they, an apprentice, someone who's learning how to do what they can do. Well, it's the same sort of idea. Jesus wants everyone and anyone to follow him and to learn how to be like him. There are three particular things that he would be keen for us to work on. Number one is learning to be with Jesus. Sounding familiar to some of you. Here we go again, yes. Being with Jesus. Learning how to be with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is number one priority. Number two is learning to become like Jesus. Not a carbon copy of him, but who, you, who Jesus would be if he was you. The perfect human. The restored image of God in you, in me. Becoming that person that God intended. Learning to be someone who's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And finally, learning to do what Jesus did. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Expand the kingdom redeem and transform everything that is broken and to be made new. So a big task, a big invitation, a wonderful one. That is the Christian life. It's more than going to church, serving on rotors, reading your Bible and being good. It's far more exciting. It does involve those things. But for a purpose beyond which uh, we can ever really get our heads around it. I love how Dallas Willard puts it. He's one of the great spiritual writers on all of this. I read this recently. He said, in spiritual formation, we are aiming at a character and life that is so shaped that the deeds of Christ routinely and easily come from what is inside. We are who we are under pressure. We are who we are when we're interrupted. Do you want to know what you're really like? That's When someone interrupts you, that's what you're like. What comes out of you, Rich Johnson, when you're under pressure, when you're interrupted, when things don't go your way, which is the story of my life, I can tell you it's not very Christ-like a lot of the time. So please don't think I'm standing up here going, da, da, da. I've spent 10 years working on it and now I can teach you. It's theory that I'm preaching to myself, but we're in it together, right? So if you don't believe me, if you think, oh, surely the vicar must be ahead of us just to have a little chat with my wife or my children. They will tell you the gory truth. And we've explored, haven't we, uh, in some depth actually, all of those ideas and particularly around that, a framework for helping us intentionally, individually and as a community engage with this, embrace this, learn to do this. We've talked about the importance of being intentional about our spiritual formation. The reality is if you're not intentionally engaging with this and being formed by God through his spirit, through his word, something else is forming you instead. We are all being formed and conformed or transformed by something and someone. The question is who and what and why and into what. So if you're not intentionally engaging with apprenticeship and spiritual formation, something else will be shaping and forming you instead. And so we have this intentional uh, paradigm which has these three key elements to it. The importance of teaching, and I don't just mean Sunday morning, Sunday evening teaching, but actually I mean the whole teaching of scripture preached by others, but also read by you and engaged with by you in your life groups and midweek groups. Uh, Because Jesus goes about teaching, teaching people the way. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's not that you just listen and suddenly by osmosis, ta-da, it's happened. That would be great. But actually that it fuels you and informs you and shapes you and challenges you and encourages you, convicts you and propels you and paints a picture for you of life. And you go, ah, and then you lean into that. And you ask other people to help you lean into that. So teaching is part of it. A second part of it is these things called practices. We'll come to that quickly in a moment. But these spiritual practices, these things that we literally practice doing because they help us be with Jesus. Become like him and learn to do what he did. Things that, unless we learn to do them, won't, we, won't be natural. Some of them will be easier for others. For some, some of you will find some things easier. Others will find other things easier. But they're important, and we work these things out together. And number three, we do it in community because God's intention was that his people would always be a family. It's as family we go. And all of it is the work of the Spirit. In us and through us. You cannot do it without an active relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is always wanting to do stuff in us and through us. Now there are two words that are really important on this slide. The first is that word intentional. I've already made the point that unless we are intentional about this, it just won't happen. Uh, William Paulsell puts it like this. We've used this quote before. It is unlikely... He says that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. But I, knowing I was starting the year off like this and feeling very fraudulent, have been trying, again, to get some better little routines and practices into my day, particularly my morning. Some of you will know I'm the one that gets up earlier. By nature, I'm just an early bird, so I'm up. And uh, I'm just trying to make sure that I do start my day in a way that's really helpful. So I've begun again to read the Bible in one year. Uh, It's already day day five, and I'm already a day behind. (laughs) But the intention is there. I'm a step ahead of anyone who hasn't even tried intentionally to do it. I'm winning already against how I was last month. It's the intentionality. That was not meant to sound like a rebuke. I'm so sorry if it did. Okay. Uh, The second word is community. I've already said this again, but I'm going to make the point. We don't do this on our own. We have to do it in the context of community, which is why Fraser, who's part-time on our team and part-time learning to be a vicar, his job here is to build midweek communities, to oversee and to nurture and to develop them. They are so important. and We want everyone to say, I'm in that expression of midweek community, partly so that you can be known and belong, but so that also you're in a context in which your spiritual formation is nurtured and encouraged and way more likely. Joseph Helleman, who's a theologian who knows about this stuff, puts it like this. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay, grow. People who leave, do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. When people say to me, Rich, I just feel like I'm going nowhere in my faith. I, I'm stale, I'm stuck, It's no, there's no joy in it anymore for me. My first question is, which midweek group are you in? All of this takes practice. All of this has to be learned. All of this is hard, which is why it's called practicing the way of Jesus. And the language of practices is more helpful, again, I think, than disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, which might be language you were given when you were perhaps younger in the church that was familiar 30 years ago. These practices, they do require discipline, of course. But actually, the idea of a practice invites us to see that it's something much more than just behavior modification doing the right things, to tick a box and trusting that something happens, when we practice getting better at something, actually it becomes true for us. It becomes our habit, our norm, our default. So far, we've looked at four practices, Uh, silence and solitude. Some of you might remember that. That is the killer app. It starts there. I'm an introvert. I love being on my own. So this isn't a hard one for me on one level, but actually it's harder on another level for all of us, because when you're on your own, you face up to yourself, right? But, but the idea of being on my own, I'm like, great. Some of you, that's the your idea of hell. Silence and solitude, really, really important. I'm not going to go into it. You can catch up online. We've looked at the practice of the Sabbath, this idea of a day, a week of rest, which is a biblical commandment and is good for us. Kath and I were having a conversation with the children over Christmas about how we reintroduce Sabbath into our family life because it's slipped, it's drifted, and we're having to recalibrate, find a different way of building it into our life so it becomes a norm because our life has changed. The circumstances of our weekends are different. It's a practice, and we're practicing it again. We're going to have another cracker, at embedding it in our lives. Personal prayer, we looked at that. Andy looked into that uh, last year, the importance of a time in the day and in the week when you're praying, and Owen looked at reading the Bible, that simple but important discipline of reading the Bible. Those are the four practices we've looked at so far. Now those things don't do it for us, right? But what they do do is posture us before God in such a way that actually we can engage with the work of the Spirit, that actually we can see what God's wanting us to see, hear what he wants us to hear, engage with what he wants us to to engage with. They facilitate us becoming people who learn to be with Jesus, to become like him, to do what he did. So for example, spending time in silence and solitude, getting away from it all, is so, so important if you want to know what's deeply going on on deeply inside you. If you want to hear the deep cry of your soul and you want to hear the Father's response, you've got to be on your own, silent, long enough. We love to drown out the noise. I was driving in this morning. My instinct to get in my little mini was to put the radio on. And I just this little check in my spirit, no, 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 no. There's a six-minute window for silence and solitude. So engrossed in God I was that I missed someone in the car in front of me, waving just at me, saying, hello, <laughs> which is not true. I just probably wasn't concentrating. But it's those little disciplines, those little moments. This season, we're going to look at two new practices. We're going to look at simplicity, and we're going to look at slowing. Simplicity and slowing. And it's worth noting, I've changed the slide, that personal prayer and reading the Bible, they actually inform those four other things. You will find that if you spend long enough on your own with God, that you'll find yourself praying or picking up the scriptures. Or sometimes you'll find that actually... Uh, reading the scriptures reminds you of the need to slow or to simplify or whatever it is. The final thing to remind us before we get back to Mary and Martha is that this is not easy. Not only do we have to learn how to do it, practice it, but it's actually something we're doing in a, in a context, in a world, and a way of life that is contested and challenged. Have you noticed that life is hard? Have you noticed that there is spiritual opposition to those who seek to grow in God? One of the surest ways you can tell that you're growing in the things of God is that you face some spiritual opposition. Conversation probably for another time. The first challenge is the challenge of denying ourselves. Jesus is absolutely crystal clear in Matthew chapter 16. He says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, my Talmudim, must, must deny themselves and take up their cross, and follow me. If you really want to hear me teach on that, there's an entire sermon just on that verse online. It's so important, the challenge of self-denial, of putting to death the old self, embracing the new, learning to order and reorder the desires of our heart. That's hard enough, right? But add to that the reality of life in the 21st century, which I don't know whether you've noticed, is increasingly one of busyness, anxiety, and distraction. And it becomes even harder. And then just to take it to another level, most of us are caught, in some to some degree or another, in digital addiction. One of the conversations we had a number of times with people over Christmas was different apps that you can use to stop you going on social media or limiting your time on certain apps. If you want to know whether you're addicted to your phone, what I suggest you do is you give it to somebody else and say, I'll pick it up tomorrow morning, and then just see how many times you reach for your pocket. Or when you're not sure what to do, you're looking for that little hit. I know, because I'm addicted to my phone. And those three things make it so much harder. Ronald Rollheiser, who's a Catholic spiritual writer, says this, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. How are you all feeling this morning? New Year. I'm so glad I came to church. Rich is on form. He's had a rest. He's not grumpy and frustrated. Guys, I'm trying to wake us up. Because the danger is we drift into 2020. We drift into the 20s. And we have the same conversation this year that we had last year and the year before and the year before. And God has more for me and you than that. But as we'll see in a moment, it comes down to choice. It's choice. I'm alert to it, I think, because I've just faced up to some of the grottiness of my soul again over Christmas. Anyone else? It's not just me. It's been pretty messy. And I'm like, oh, man. And then I read the scriptures, and I read the promises of Jesus. And I'm thinking, that's not true for me. And then I remember, but I've got to practice the way of Jesus. I have to live in such a way that I can take hold of it and it can shape and form me. I can't just hope that it might become true one day. The good news is there is an alternative to the anxious, busy, distracted life that all of us lead. The bad news is it's really costly and very countercultural. I would argue it's less costly than carrying on the way many of us do by default, but it's hard. It turns out that in the story of Mary and Martha, there is some wisdom and perspective. Let's start with Martha. Martha is anxious, distracted, and busy. Anyone starting 2020 like that? Come on, some of you are lying. I mean, just sheer liars. Come on. That's an entirely different sermon. If you are not anxious or worried or busy or distracted in any way possible, please come and lead our church. That would be so good. Uh, Verse 38. Back in Luke 10. Verse 38. Jesus and his disciples come for lunch. Now, we don't know in this story whether this is like by invitation. It's been prearranged. Or whether it's a spontaneous drop-in. It's entirely possible, knowing Jesus, that it's a spontaneous drop-in. And either way, we find that Martha is stressing out. And perhaps for understandable reasons. One commentator reminded me as I read this that he's just regrouped with the 72 who've been off on these trips and come back together and having a debrief. It's entirely possible that Jesus and 72 others have decided to come for lunch. And chances are, because by now he's quite famous, there's a whole load of other people going, I want in on this. And so perhaps there's 100, 150 people suddenly invading Mary and Martha's house, and Martha's a bit stressed. Everyone, it says, verse 39, except Martha, is sat listening to Jesus teaching. Teaching, practice, community, community. He's telling them about this way of life in the kingdom of God, this new way of being human, this new yoke, this new sense of what God is up to. And Martha is trying to make them all lunch. Most sermons I've heard on this passage, I think, give Martha a really hard time for not being able to just put aside the lunch and go and be with Jesus. You get this kind of classic question, don't you? Are you a Martha or a Mary? I think it's possible to be both. We need Martha's. Without Martha, no one's eating. The question isn't, do we serve and do the things that need to get done willingly for other people? The question, as we'll see, is at what expense? Martha, I think, gets a disservice often in our understanding. Put yourself in Martha's place for a moment. Not only will lunch not happen if she doesn't take the lead, but Actually, wouldn't you find yourself a bit distracted if 150 people, maybe plus Jesus, turn up for lunch? I mean, you'd start thinking about whether you cleaned enough and is there loo roll downstairs and, oh my goodness, the children and, oh, oh, you know, here you go. And then add into the fact that in those days, hospitality is this massively important thing and getting it wrong came with all sorts of social kind of issues and kind of to get it wrong was a no no. That's why Jesus turns water into wine again at a wedding, to rescue the host of the wedding, if you remember. And then remember, of course, this isn't just 150 people. This is Jesus, the Messiah, in your house. And you're thinking, heck, I better get this right. This is God. Forget that he was quite happy to be born in a manger. Wouldn't you be distracted, concerned, worried, anxious, wondering... How many times are going to have to go to the well to get water? And whether you've got, oh, heck, ah, ah. And then, of course, you look through the room and there's Mary. Mary, who should be here helping me. There she is. Jesus. Martha is not happy. And so she goes to Jesus, verse 40. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Lord, don't you care? wow, what a question that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. I think she's expecting a different response from the one she gets. In my mind, I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. She sounds a bit like the elder brother. There's a resentment and an entitlement and a, don't you see... And how can it possibly be okay? And Jesus, you've got to do something about this. Because that's not how it works. These aren't the rules, right? And perhaps she's heard Jesus teach elsewhere about the importance of service. Notice, and she wouldn't have heard this because this is later in the story, but chances are he said it many times. This is Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Now Jesus here is talking about the return, his return, and us being ready and prepared and serving diligently until he does. But, but perhaps Martha's going, I've, I've seen him do this. I, I get this. He, he, surely he's going to side with me. But he doesn't. He rebukes Martha. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, depending on how you read this, you get a different sense of what that moment might have been like. It could have been, Martha, Martha! How dare you? Don't you get it? For goodness sake, woman! I don't think that's how Jesus said it. I think he looked at her with loving eyes, kind eyes. And said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Is it possible that you're missing the point? Is it possible that actually what really matters in this moment isn't all that stuff? But that you can attend to me like your sister. Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha for not caring about her guests, wanting to offer great hospitality. He doesn't rebuke her for getting frustrated with Mary. Actually, it's not even for being anxious and stressed. It's a loving rebuke. It's not harsh. Martha is rebuked for allowing other things, many of them good, to prevent her from engaging with what really matters the most. Jesus can see that she's become so anxious and busy and distracted by things, good things, that she's not able to be present to him in that moment. This is compassion. Because he wants her to live into a better way of being human that Mary seems to have understood. So verse 41, you are worried and upset about many things. What were the many things that she's worried and upset about? What are the many things that you and I... I've come into this year worried about, upset about. It's day five of January. My inbox already has things in it where people are articulating worries and upset. It's normal. It's life. The question isn't whether you get worried and upset about things. It's what you do when that becomes true for you. Martha was full of good intentions. I don't doubt her heart for one moment. But what we seem to see here is that it came at a cost. That Jesus is saying it's not worth paying that cost. So notice what he says in verse 42. Martha, few things are needed. I wonder whether this is a summary conversation. And perhaps he might have said, Do you know what? No one really cares what we eat. Like baked beans on toast is totally fine. It doesn't actually matter that your house is a bit of a mess. That there's a pile of ironing in the corner, like, honestly, just want you to relax. There's just a moment here. Who cares? And Jesus says then something profound. Perhaps just one thing is needed." He seems to almost change his mind in a halfway through his sentence, a few things are needed, or, or indeed only one, actually. Martha. Just one. Martha's so caught up in things. She's anxious and worried and upset because she thinks they matter. And in a sense, they do kind of matter, but not ultimately. And so she misses the point entirely. All her busyness, diligence, care, concern, and insecurity make her anxious to the, the one, and blind to the one thing that is necessary being with Jesus, crouching down with your daughter and watching white powder become snow and just enjoying it and then going somewhere else. Maybe in that moment, Jesus just wants Martha to stop. And so he says to her, Verse 42, I I understand your frustration with your sister, brackets. I think you look with kind eyes, but, but Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. And it won't be taken away from her because it's in there, in that moment, that the magic happens. It's in the moments with me that the transformation happens. It's in the moment with me that you get what you need. And all this other stuff, it can be good, but it can also be a distraction. Friends, Jesus doesn't invite us to add him in or make room or sort of get him into our to-do list. He doesn't want us busy running around for him. He invites us to reorientate our entire lives around him so that we learn a different way of being human, the unforced rhythms of grace. Martha was so busy getting everything ready for Jesus that she actually wasn't with him. It's not that what she was doing wasn't of good value and importance. It's just that it left her so upset and worried and anxious and resentful of Mary that she couldn't actually enjoy Jesus right there. And Jesus, I think, is saying, it's not worth it if it gets you into this state. Because it's, it's just stuff. No one remembers what they had for lunch that day. But they remember being in Mary and Martha's house with Jesus, hearing the stories so this brings us finally to Mary. It seems to me that Martha isn't the strange person in the story, the one that kind of doesn't make sense. It seems to me that Mary is the strange one. Mary wasn't distracted. Mary wasn't anxious, and worried, and upset, in that moment at least. I'm sure she was at other times. She seemed quite happy to embrace the moment, to sit at his feet and to listen, to ignore the pile of washing, to not worry too much that the toilet isn't clean, to just let it be what it is because she could see this moment of magic right before her and she was just going to give it her attention. Was she, as Martha thinks, perhaps, completely oblivious to everything her big sister's doing? I don't know whether she was her big sister. I always imagined that. Or was she consciously making a choice just to not get anxious and stressed and distracted? Mary chose the one thing, and Jesus commends her for it. In that moment, Mary's way more enthralled with Jesus than herself, way more concerned about him than anything else. She doesn't care what what others might think of her, only what Jesus thinks of her. She's not going to let things get in the way of him. And we're left, I think, with the same choice to make again and again and again. And the choice for 2020 is are you going to be people who make that choice on a daily basis? Am I? I get anxious. I get worried. I get upset. I get easily distracted. I can be really grumpy and impatient and irritable. Sure sign that I've got my choices, my priorities wrong. The answer to the hurried, anxious, busy life is surprising and hard. It's to recognize that letting things take us away from God is not the way of God. And to learn a different way. And that is what practicing the way of Jesus is all about. The life we're invited into and crave comes when we recognize that we're so prone to missing the point to becoming upset and worried about all the wrong things it doesn't matter if dot 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 fill in the blanks for you you don't need dot 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 fill in the blanks for you what Jesus says is there's only one thing there's actually only one thing everything else comes from there One thing. One thing. Moment by moment. To fix your eyes on him. To put him right in the center. To attend to him. To shape your life around him. To listen to what he says and put it into practice. And he says, everything else will be given to you. I'm going to finish by reading the same text, but from the Passion paraphrase. It's quite new. Some of you will be familiar with it, and then we're going to pray. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their journey, they came to a village where a woman welcomed Jesus into her home. Her name was Martha, and she had a sister named Mary. Mary sat down attentively before the master, absorbing every revelation he shared. But Martha became exasperated by finishing the numerous household chores in preparation for her guests. So she interrupted Jesus and said, Lord, don't you think it's unfair that my sister left me to do all the work by myself? You should tell her to get up and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, my beloved Martha, why are you upset and troubled, pulled away, By all those many distractions, are they really that important? Mary has discovered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted, and I won't take this privilege from her. Let's stand together, if we're able.